morning, everybody. As you can see, Pastor Rich is not here, and you've got me. Um, after teaching every week throughout this whole pandemic, and for the last couple of months teaching twice a week, I think he's earned a break. So, uh, so that's how you end up with me here. And unlike most of the uh, teaching Sundays that I'm up here, it is not a time change Sunday. It is not a holiday of any sort. It is not a, the week of a major sporting event. So that really leaves me with a lot less of these kind of icebreaker materials to work with as far as when I start my message. Um, but that's okay, because my, my time slot is cut a little short, so you know, there's less time for fluff anyway. You know, we can get right down to the word, because that's what you came here for, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So last week, uh, we looked at John chapter 14, verses 4 to 6, well-known words of Jesus. As he prepared to go to the cross, he had been telling his disciples that he was leaving and he was going to prepare a place for them. He told them that they knew the way to get there. Of course, they were confused, thinking that he meant a physical way, and they didn't know the physical way. They didn't have Google Maps either, so they wanted to get the proper directions, and they asked him for them. Thomas spoke up, admitting that they didn't know the way, and Jesus gave the best directions one could ask for. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, they were thinking of looking for more like follow the road to Emmaus for a day's journey, then turn right and head towards Jericho, take a left at the fork in the road where the bennies used to be. Oh, this isn't on. That's why you didn't see the bennies. There we go. Uh oh. There we go. <laughs> Take a left at the fork where the bennies used to be. That's how we give directions around here, right? Um, Benjamin is a Jewish name. I mean, they, they might have had something named bennies back then. Uh, <laughs> but instead of physical directions, he gave them spiritual directions. The way to the Father, the way to eternal life is Jesus. And Pastor Rich talked about how Jesus made it perfectly clear that there weren't many paths to God. There's only one, and it's Jesus himself. Now, some might say that that's narrow-minded, and they mean that in a very negative sense, that we should be more open-minded, we should um, be more accepting of different ways to get to God. But, you know, to believe this is narrow-minded in a good way, the same way that to believe that one plus one equals two is narrow-minded. We don't take other numbers into consideration for what the answer to that question is, do we? You know, if we have one right answer, we shouldn't beat around the bush and try and consider all the wrong ones, we should focus on that right answer and tell other people about that right answer. So that's what we should do as believers. We know the answer. Uh, the answer is Jesus. Now today, we're going to pick up right where we left off, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 of chapter 14. Uh, that's continuing the discussion that Jesus was having with the disciples in the upper room, the, uh, the upper room discourse, as it's called. So if you'll turn there, we can read it together, this whole section. John chapter 14. Starting in verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, we do just pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. I pray that you would just prepare our hearts to hear from you, guide us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would speak through me and help me to be clear and uh, uh, communicate the message that you've given me to share this morning. We just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, being here with us. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So this section... I'm going to admit right up front, is a little daunting. It's, there's a lot in there. And we could spend months studying it. So either Pastor Rich would have to take a really long vacation, or I'd have to tell all the folks from Second Service not to bother showing up because we're going to be here all day. You know, There's going to be plenty here that we don't have time to get to. Um, you can go back and read it again and again yourselves. I encourage you to do so because there's a lot here that we could study and look at about Jesus, about the Father, about prayer. Um, But there's a few things that I really zeroed in on as I was studying this week, and they were to know him, believe him, and ask him. That just kept coming back to me the more that I looked at it. The section, as I said before, immediately follows Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he goes on to say, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. By saying this, Jesus tells them what Philip is about to reveal, that they don't know him as well as they think they do, or perhaps as well as they should. If you really knew me implies that they didn't really know him. Um, we've seen time and time again in the Gospel of John that the disciples closest to Jesus, the twelve, who spent every day, all day, with him for three years plus, uh, were still prone to confusion about Jesus' ministry, his mission, and who Jesus was, despite all this time that they spent with him. Now, there are frequent times that they asked questions that they perhaps seemed like they should have known the answer to, Right? And those are only the ones where they actually spoke up. Imagine how many times they were confused and didn't say anything because they were embarrassed and they just kept smiling and nodding when Jesus talked, right? We just have some recorded of all the times they were confused. And that's enough. Um, Peter tried to tell Jesus, remember, no, Lord, no, you aren't going to the cross. And Jesus, of course, said, get behind me, Satan, because that wasn't something he should have been saying. He shouldn't be trying to tell Jesus, no, you're not going to the cross, when that was the very reason that he was here. Um, The disciples, they had tried to tell parents that Jesus was too busy to bless their children, right? But Jesus told them, let the little children come to me. Don't forget all the times that the disciples thought that Jesus couldn't handle a situation. Like when Philip said, six months' wages wouldn't give all these people a mouthful right before Jesus fed the 5,000. Even after all this time, there were things about Jesus that they just didn't get. 
either because they hadn't been paying enough attention to his words or because they just couldn't grasp it yet. Because they didn't really know Jesus, they didn't know the Father either. And because Jesus is the exact perfect representation of the Father, if they had known him, they would know the Father as well. The Life Application Study Bible says, Jesus is the visible, tangible image of the invisible God. He is the complete revelation of what God is like. So if you know Jesus, you do know the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, since Jesus is the exact representation of God, if we know him, we know the Father. The disciples at this point still did not really know Jesus. They did not know the Father either as a result. Bible commentator William Hendrickson wrote of this, They did not know the Lord as fully as they would have known him had they given closer heed to all his words and admonitions. Moreover, had they done so, they would have had a fuller and richer perception of the Father also. They had failed too often to see in Jesus the only and absolute way and the only and absolute God. They had failed to some extent to see in him the only Son of God who, because he is the Son, reveals the Father." But if they had failed before, Jesus wasn't overly harsh with them. He told them, from now on, you have seen him. You could say in one sense that this means, from now on, you do know him because I just told you, right? I told you again that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So from now on, you know the answer, right? We're clear on this? You You could look at it that way. You know, from now on, because I just told you again, you should know this. It's going to be on the test. You know, <laughs> like, but I do wonder, given all the other times that Jesus had actually spoken about this, if saying it one more time, that probably wasn't enough, and that probably wasn't why from now on they would know this. The difference maker this time would be what Jesus was about to do. He was about to go to the cross, pay the penalty for sin, and then rise again on the third day defeating sin and death. If these disciples hadn't really known Jesus up until this point, this would make it a lot clearer who he was. The resurrection would make it clear just how powerful he was if all the other miracles he had done hadn't revealed that to them yet. What better shows us what Jesus is like than what he's done on the cross? His love for us demonstrated vividly as he took our place and shed his blood for our sin. If they didn't know him before, his death and resurrection should have given them a much deeper understanding than they ever had before. David Guzik said of this, the disciples certainly had learned and known much about God in their three years of apprenticeship under Jesus. Yet Jesus understood that since they had not yet seen the full revelation of God's love at the cross and his power at the resurrection, there was a sense in which they would only now know and see God. Now, we have the benefit all this time later, over 2,000 years later, that most likely the first thing we learned about Jesus was that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. The disciples hadn't seen this yet, but they soon would. Now, Philip said in verse 8 here, 
Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip really wasn't listening, was he? Jesus just said this. Previous sentence. (laughs) And he says, show us the Father. Like, was he like holding that question in until Jesus was done talking? Does anyone else ever do that? Where you're not even listening to what a person is saying because you're so ready to ask a question? That's what I get the sense of here. He certainly wasn't picking up what Jesus was laying down, you know? <laughs> he, he was confused. And he was speaking for all of them. Show us the Father. What he seemed to want was an actual view of the Father himself. Perhaps like Moses had experienced on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, after which his face had been so, become so radiant from the glory of God that he was visibly glowing. Maybe that's what Philip was looking for. His desire to see God was good. His failure to see that he had been traveling with the very God he desired to see for three years was not good. Jesus had to gently rebuke him when he, had, he said, Don't you know me, Philip? After all this time, I've been among you. Especially given that he had just explained this a minute before. Bible commentator William Tenney said of this, No material image or likeness can adequately depict God. Only a person can give knowledge of him, since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object. Furthermore, if a personality must be employed to represent God, that personality cannot be less than God and do him justice, nor can it be so far above humanity that it cannot communicate God perfectly to man. I would say that experiencing God in the way that Moses did might fall under that so far above humanity that it cannot be communicated perfectly to men. Certainly, Moses knew God and grasped that God was glorious and powerful. But if Moses had been able to spend time with Jesus, I think that he would know God even better than he did. Jesus, since he was fully God and fully man, was the only perfect way to show us who God is and what he's like. Somehow, Philip misunderstood this until this point, that he had a better experience of God than Moses ever had. To walk with him, to spend time with him, to eat meals with him, to be with God in that way was better than what he was looking for. Show us the Father, he said. Well, Jesus said, I have been showing you the Father. Haven't you been listening? We who are believers have the benefit of the complete word of God and the Holy Spirit to guide us and help us to understand. But still... Even with those advantages, like Philip, we can fail to really know Jesus and really know what he's like. Even after we've been following him for a long time and learned all of these things and read all of these passages in the Bible, we can uh, fall back into a different perception of who God is and what Jesus is like, a worldly idea of him or our own idea of him. It's very easy to do. Our goal should always be to know the real him better each day until we see him face to face in that place he has prepared for us in heaven. And we won't get to know him better unless we spend time with him in his word and in prayer. I'm obligated to mention that you should read your Bibles and pray. That's a classic here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to put that in every message. (laughs) And, And for good reason. It's very important. That's why Pastor Rich talks about it as much as he does. That To know God, we need to be reading his word and praying to him. 
And that's not to scold you if you've been falling off for a little while, but just to encourage you that that's important and you should get back in that groove um, or get into it for the first time if you haven't yet. If we really want to know him, we need to spend time with him. We need to truly seek to understand him and his love for us. Um, Knowing him depends greatly on our believing and trusting in him, which brings me to my second big point. First was know him. Second is believe him. Unless we believe that what he said himself about himself is true, all of it, and what his word says about him, how can we know him? Do we really feel like we know a person if we don't actually believe anything they say? Right? Jesus tied knowing and believing together as he continued to address Philip in verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So in other words, Jesus is imploring them to believe that he was indeed who he said he was. And if they found it too difficult to believe his words, then to look at the miracles that he had worked as proof. Now, William Hendrickson, who I quoted before, also said this, The disciples were wavering in their faith, a faith which had never been strong. But whatever faith is present in their hearts must be kept there and strengthened, especially now with the master about to leave. It is for this reason that Jesus again exhorts his disciples to believe that he is in the Father and the Father in him. They are urged to take Jesus at his word. This is ever the highest type of faith. But if this be difficult for them, let them believe because of the works considered by themselves. To really know Jesus, we have to believe that he is indeed who he says he is, completely. Otherwise, what we'll have is what the world around us has done with Jesus, sadly, and even some churches. And then we'll pick and choose things about him that we like, and we'll craft a different Jesus than the real one. If we don't believe everything he says and everything his word says about him, then we're making a different Jesus than the real Jesus for ourselves. And that's no God at all, but a creation of our own. That's how the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of lords and the King of kings can be reduced to a good teacher by some people. Jesus, as has been said many times, he didn't really leave that as an option. Oh, you, you guys can listen to my teaching, but not believe in me. His teaching centered largely around believing in him. So you can't just take the moral things out of Jesus' teachings and then not believe that he is who he says he is. That old quote, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You have to pick one. So, people who would call him simply that don't believe everything he says about himself, and thus they don't know the real Jesus. And of course, belief in Jesus is critical to our salvation itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's where our walk with Jesus begins, is believing in him, taking him at his word. Now, some struggle with this step of faith And like the disciples, they can look to the work Jesus has done and is still doing as evidence. Even if we've never seen an obvious miracle of healing or seen loaves of bread and pieces of fish multiplied or water changed into wine, we have seen and should be able to see around us 
that Jesus is still saving sinners and changing lives every day. So we have this miraculous evidence all around us, and we ourselves, if we are believers in him, are part of that evidence. And so we can lead others to Jesus. You can say, look at the proof in my life of what Jesus has done for me. And that shows how important it is that we accurately represent him to other people uh, when we talk about him and by how we live in this world. We are the evidence. Jesus had been making it clear to his disciples and to anyone around him, both in his words and his works, exactly who he is. And now he was calling the disciples not just to believe in him, but to keep on believing. That's the uh, tense of the verb that he used when he said, believe in me. It's, it's keep on believing. That's, that's how the original Hebrew reads. The more we believe him, taking him at his word, the more he'll prove to us that we don't really have any reason to doubt him. Now, I've seen it in my own life that he's proven his enduring love and faithfulness to me time and time again, and I can tell people about that, and in that way, that's my witness and that's my evidence for why they should give their lives to Jesus as well. Now, when my faith wavers, when I freak out about some situation or problem that I know I should trust him with, I have to remind myself A, who Jesus is, B, what his word says, and C, how he's already shown me so many times that I can keep on trusting him and believing just that, who he is and what his word says. Now, that's not something I've mastered. I still freak out about things like anyone else. Ask my wife. She she has to bear the brunt of that. Um, But... When I do, I try to remember that he's never failed me and he never will. And I remember what his word says. And I know I don't have to worry and that he doesn't want me to. He wants me to get back to following and serving him. And that brings me to my third point, that we need to ask him for help. Know him, believe him, ask him. Jesus connected knowing him with believing in him, and then he went on to connect believing in him to serving him and asking in prayer for his help to do so. In verses 12 to 14. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus was about to go to the cross. And after his resurrection, though he would appear to them for a time, he would then ascend to the Father. In other words, he was leaving soon. He had been telling them that he was going, and they may have wondered as much as they could even grasp the idea of him leaving, what they were going to do after he was gone. Would this three-year ministry that they had been involved in come to an abrupt end? Would they go back to whatever they were doing when Jesus first found them? Jesus, David Guzik said of this, Jesus began the first of three assurances given to his disciples on the night of his departure, The first assurance answered their fear. This is the end. The work is over, and we all got fired. But they didn't get fired. They got promoted, and promoted to greater things. Now, Jesus was telling them that after he was gone, not only would they still have work to do, but they would have greater work to do. He didn't mean that they would work more amazing miracles than Jesus had worked. The things Jesus had done in his ministry were pretty hard to top, weren't they? I mean, it doesn't get much more amazing than raising the dead. P. 
Peter did once raise the dead, a woman named Dorcas in the book of Acts you can read about. But that's not a greater miracle than Jesus. That's the same miracle. And it wasn't Peter doing it on his own. It was God doing it through Peter. What Jesus meant was that the work would have both greater reach as it would extend to a far larger geographical area than where he had had his ministry, and that a greater number of people and kinds of people would be affected by it because they were not only going to Jews but going to the Gentiles. It's worth noting that more people became believers in Jesus after Peter first addressed the crowd on Pentecost than had been recorded in Jesus' entire ministry, a greater number. But more importantly than geographical distance or numbers, the greater things they were doing or going to do, as you can read about in the books of Act, book of Acts, would largely be spiritual in nature. And spiritual works are greater than physical ones. We see in Acts that the disciples did work physical miracles at times to demonstrate God's power. The emphasis of their ministry, though, was on winning souls for Christ and encouraging and instructing those who turned to him to follow him. Many of Jesus' miracles were physical in nature and showed his power and provided evidence that he was indeed who he said he was. But people often saw only the physical side of things that he did, wanting more and more amazing miracles to satisfy them when they really needed to believe in him. Think of how they followed him around the lake after he fed the 5,000, looking for another demonstration and another meal. Jesus said to them in John 6, 26 to 27, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Works the disciples would do after Jesus left them would be these kinds of works, works that endured to eternal life, works of bringing people to Jesus. All of this work was, of course, done by God, through them. It wasn't something that Jesus was going to have them do on their own. And Jesus said that he, they would do these greater things because he was going to the Father. They would do them because he wouldn't be physically there anymore. But also, as we'll read about next week, because the Holy Spirit came after Jesus went to the, the Father to empower them to do these things. Before Jesus told them about the Holy Spirit, which we're not going to cover today, he told them, and I will do... I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Does he really mean we can ask anything? Can we ask for sports cars or yachts or houses on the beach? I think we all know the answer to that, right? I don't look out in the parking lot at Calvary Chapel each week and see a row of different colored Lamborghinis and Ferraris, right? What exactly did Jesus mean when he said anything? You know, that's not even really my dream car. That's something I know that people like. I, I like a classic car with a little more cargo space myself. But, you know, Lamborghinis and Ferraris is something that people relate to extravagant wealth. So, anyway, back to the point here. <laughs> what did Jesus mean when he said anything? Anything has two conditions that we can see right here in the verses if we really look at them instead of getting sidetracked when I put pictures of cars up on the screen. The first condition is that we need to ask in his name. Now, some people think that attaching in Jesus' name to the end of a prayer means asking in his name. Or if they put it at the beginning even, 
in the name of Jesus, I ask X, Y, Z. But to really believe that turns the Almighty God into some sort of genie in a lamp, that if we just speak the right way and say the right words, and he's bound to do what we asked him for, right? And if we just have enough faith, that's another thing that people say. That's been very much abused by prosperity preachers. Name it and claim it. And if you don't get the thing you asked for, the problem you're dealing with solved, then it must be because you don't have enough faith. But this ignores that God has not made this promise to us unconditionally. To pray in the name of Jesus doesn't just mean to say the words in Jesus' name, but to pray for something that is in accordance with what his name means and stands for, who Jesus is. Scottish Bible commentator William Barclay wrote, The test of any prayer is, can I make it in the name of Jesus? No man, for instance, could pray for personal revenge, for personal ambition, for some unworthy or unchristian object in the name of Jesus. I would say that plenty of people have tried by using the words in the name of Jesus to pray for things that they shouldn't be praying for. Selfish things, personal things that that don't serve any good purpose. But those prayers aren't going to be answered because they do not line up with his character and his will. Now, does that mean that I have to try to ascertain whether every prayer I make lines up with God's will? That'd be scary. It'd be impossible for many prayers. Now, certainly we know that when we pray for things that God's word has promised and pray for things that God has told us to pray for in his word, that we can be sure that we're praying in his will. But other things, things that we don't know what God's will is about, should we just quit praying? The answer to that is obviously no. We should ask these things in Jesus' name, but recognize that ultimately we don't always know whether that prayer is really his will or not. We can take Jesus' example from the Garden of Gethsemane and say, not my will, but yours be done, and really mean it, which can be harder than just saying it. Now, does that show a lack of faith in God to answer our prayer? No. It's rather a sign of faith that we trust that he knows the best way to answer our prayer, even if the answer is no. The best way that he will be glorified, or most glorified, That's the second condition Jesus makes in his promise, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. What we are praying for in Jesus' name, in accordance with his character and will, should bring glory to the Father. And that brings me back to the fact that I don't know always what will bring the most glory to the Father. Paul demonstrated this when he prayed that his thorn in his flesh would be removed, but God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. It would bring more glory to the Father for Paul to keep going and serving him with that thorn than without it. So Paul accepted it. Not my will, but yours be done. Now we have that same promise as we follow and serve Jesus that if we pray these things in his name according to his will as we serve him, then he will give them to us. Whatever he's called us to do, he will help us to do it is what Jesus is promising them. So serve him. And know that he's going to help you. He's not going to leave you on your own to do it. And we do have the promise of the Holy Spirit to guide us and help us that we'll read more about next week. So once again, as I get ready to wrap this up, three things Jesus wanted his disciples to know. Know him, believe him, and ask him as they served him. We're all called to do these same things. It's not a teaching for apostles only. He wants us to know him to really know him, to seek him and know him better each day. He wants us to believe in him and everything he says about himself 
everything his word says about him. He wants us to have faith in him and trust him. That goes along with belief. And he wants us to know that he will help us as we ask him for help to serve and glorify God. So that's pretty much the whole Christian life right there, isn't it? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you came to make a way for us for, for eternal life, Lord. And we praise you that you are that way. We thank you for telling us how to follow you. We thank you for guiding us and directing us. We thank you for the promises that you've given us that you won't leave us on our own. We do want to know you better each day. We pray, Lord, you would help us to grow in that knowledge of you and your love for us to better understand you by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to have faith and trust in you in all that you've done for us and all that you're going to do for us that you've promised. We pray that you would help us to serve you and do the work that you've called us to. And if we don't know what that work is, Lord, we pray that you would reveal it to us. Help us to remember to ask you for help and that we can pray in your name and glorify you. And if there's anyone here today and or listening at home who has never turn to you, Lord. I do pray for them right now, and you can pray as well, Lord. If you, you can pray to the Lord that he would be your Savior, that you would put your trust in him and believe in him right now, and you can pray like this. Lord, I believe in you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe what you say about yourself. The claims that you made I know are true. I want to follow you. I know I need a Savior. I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness and your sacrifice on the cross paid for my debt. I pray, Lord, that you would just enter my life and, and by your Holy Spirit, you would help me to grow in you. I want to follow you from now on. So we just thank you again, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to, to remember all of these things. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.